Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real, and I'm grateful to be with you today. With me, I've got a guest. He's been on the show before, and so I'd like to just reach out and say thank you to Chris Bloxham for being back on the podcast. Thanks, Bill. Glad to be back. Awesome. Glad to have you on. Today's going to be a lot of fun, but we want to preface this episode. Uh, we're going to be talking today about several excommunications in the LDS Church throughout the church's history at various points. Some of them are contemporary with Joseph Smith, some of them are, are 50 years later, and some of them are somewhat recent. And and so as we talk about these excommunications, some of these have what I think would be details that we can chuckle at and have a joke or two, but there's also details in here that can be at times perhaps crude to the listener. If if this is an episode or this is a podcast you like to listen to with your children, uh, this may be an episode you're going to want to listen to first on your own before you you listen to it in a in a room full of kids. Uh, and I would just encourage if you're someone who's offended easily uh, by a few crude remarks or a few crude facts in a story. Or if people being excommunicated is something that kind of goes against what you kind of want to listen to, I would just suggest you turn it off now. But otherwise, sit back. This is going to be a lot of fun, I think. A really good episode that's going to be very interesting on excommunications in the LDS Church that I don't think the average member knows about. And uh, and so I thought, Chris, I would start off and we would talk about one that I think a lot of progressive Mormons have heard. Maybe they've heard of to death. And so... We'll just kind of run through this one as the first one, but I think it gets more interesting after this. The The first one is Helmuth uh, Hubner, and, and he's born in 1925 uh, in Germany, and and he's a member of the LDS Church. The The German branch president uh, who's in you know his, his branch, obviously the church is smaller over there, there's branches, uh, and, and he's a member of a branch, and the branch president is a is a convert to the church. He's been a member of the church less than two years, so I think we have to offer some sensitivity to this story as we as we listen. He's not he's not uh, experienced. He's certainly not church broke, <laughs> uh, Chris. But um, what happens to Helmuth is is this: uh, he's a German. He he sees his branch president reach out and extend rules that uh, keep the Jews from attending church service. And this is right in the middle of the Nazi regime. And and Helmuth courageously kind of stands up to his branch president against this. And and but it kind of dies down and, and Helmuth keeps going to church. He keeps attending. But at some point what happens is he discovers his brother's shortwave radio. And in discovering his brother's shortwave radio, he starts listening to the BBC. Now, I don't know about you, Chris. I don't know if you've listened to the BBC, but oh, that yeah. would bore me to death. But Helmuth found it <laughs> he found it interesting. And so, so he like starts listening, listening to, to um, it. I don't know, a lot of NPR, you know. And there's some good NPR, but, you know, right. it, can, it can drag. But there's a lot of yeah, bad NPR, too. <laughs> right. And so if you've got nothing better to do, you know, find the BBC, but, but generally not what's occupying most people's attention. But he discovers a shortwave radio. He starts listening to the BBC, and he notices that the British broadcast of what's going on with the war and with, with the Nazi regime is a much different perspective than the one that the German radios are presenting to him, the radio programs are presenting to him. And so he starts to share this with his friends, and they begin to make pamphlets and pass them out. Eventually, he's caught by the Gestapo, and kind of out of this act of needing to defend the church or to kind of 
maintain his authority or something. This branch president, 10 days after he's caught, excommunicates Helmuth. Um, and he does it without having a disciplinary court and without contacting anybody higher up than him. So he doesn't contact a district president. He doesn't call church headquarters, doesn't have a disciplinary council, just as the branch president just says, look, he's excommunicated it and just does it. Plus, he's a minor, right? Right. He's, he's only 16 or 17. Yeah, 17 years old. So he's born in 25, and uh, this happens, I believe, in 42. Uh, so 1942, he's caught by the Gestapo. Branch president excommunicates him. Uh, the Nazis sentence him to be executed. They also take away all of his civil rights. They say he has no civil rights as a, as a citizen of Germany. And so while he's in prison, the other prisoners take his blankets. They beat him up. He sleeps on the cold floor. He doesn't have adequate clothing. Because he doesn't have any civil rights, he has no recourse of action. And, and then he's uh, executed uh, by beheading. And so they behead this this 17-year-old kid. And the other friends who were with him, they're charged as well. But but the two most serious uh, sentences, one got five years, the other one got 10 years. And it's not until four years later, the war is over, that the new mission president, Max Zimmer, hears of this story. And and sadly, it's posthumously, but but Max says that that the rules weren't followed appropriately, that Helmuth had, hadn't done anything wrong, and he works with the church to have him essentially um, rebaptized by proxy, priesthood blessings restored. All those kinds of things happened. But it's just a, it's a crazy story where one leader, this, this leadership roulette that we talk about often, can have such an effect on somebody. If you're off somewhere and your leader just kind of goes... Kind of goes away from the handbook, away from the rules, away from whatever the protocols are. There could be a lot of damage done, and, and sadly, uh, Helmuth at the age of seventeen is ex- executed, as well as excommunicated. And I can only imagine the heart wrench this kid felt. And yet, on the day of, of his excommunication, he bears testimony uh, of God, of Christ, and and says that I will see you on the other side, which is going to be a much better place. And he, and he writes that in his last letter to, to the ward members or the branch members uh, that he left behind. Kind of a sad story. It's crazy that he was a priest in his branch and had that much courage and that much maturity. Yeah. Um, but didn't uh, – it seems like the branch president, uh, didn't he also hang a sign over the church meeting house that said, like, Jews – no Jews welcome or no Jews allowed, something like that. Right. Yeah, this branch Being... president does that. Um, Helmuth's friends made the comment that that their that most of their district were anti-Nazi. That there were like seven uh, people who were in favor of the Nazis in their church district, and that six of them were in Helmuth's ward or branch. And, and so you can imagine just having a handful of people who feel strongly about something that's really, really at the core is violating the the spirit of the gospel. And yet it mm-hmm. only takes a handful of people to have that kind of impact. Yeah. Sad. Had you ever seen the movie on uh, Helmut Hubner? I hadn't. I, I did there's read a, that there was lots of books and movies, but I hadn't. There's a uh, kind of a church movie. I think uh, I've watched with my kids before. It's an older movie, but uh, I think something that you would have seen like in seminary, that type of thing. Did um, kind of did they cover cool the, the main facts of the story? Did it feel like yeah. they covered them appropriately? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you mentioned it 
earlier, but they were printing the um, anti-Nazi propaganda on the church's mimeograph machine. Mm, I didn't know and, that. And I think that's what the – I think that's another reason the branch president felt slighted as it was being done under his uh, under his watch and without his approval. Mm. Mm-mm. Well, what if uh, what if we move on to one of the apostles that were excommunicated? Okay, so pick one. Who are we going to talk about? Um, how about uh, let's do Richard Lyman next? Okay, let me grab. Uh, so I've got all these papers on my floor. Let me grab Richard Lyman. Um, do you want to get us started on that one? Or you want me to talk about him, or what are you thinking? Well, uh, he's a fascinating one to me because um, there's another victim that I think is gets lost in the story a lot, and that was the woman that he was caught in the adulterous act with. Her name was Anna Sophia Jacobson. But Richard Lyman was born in Fillmore in 1870. He really smart guy, uh, if you recall a little bit of his, of his life. He graduated from Cornell with a Ph.D. in civil engineering. Uh, he was ordained an apostle in 1918 by Joseph F. Smith. His wife, Amy, was a really educated woman as well. She attended Cornell and I believe the University of Chicago. She served in the state legislature and she was the General Relief Society president as well. Um, but, and, and, you know, by all accounts, they had a pretty good marriage, at least in the beginning. They only had two children. But there's a family account um, that says that after the birth of their second child, she announced to Richard that. Their marriage would, would would from now on be platonic, celibate, and uh, man, what a rough what a rough thing to hear from your wife. Ooh, I mean, I, I think you know our audience can handle this. I think the reality of marriage is that intimacy is a, an important part, and for for the wife to say that's it, you know, I'm I'm cutting you off. That that's a dynamic that's going to make any marriage, I think, have some serious bumps in it. Absolutely. And I, and I don't think it's a rumor. People that uh, their family members that visited their home said they slept in separate bedrooms and, uh, you know, lived essentially pretty separate lives. They're also, as another side story, is their son, when he's 35, uh, dies from carbon monoxide poisoning in the garage with the, with the vehicle mm. running. Mm. And I think that probably affected them both, um, you know, in ways that maybe don't get mentioned in the story. But what ends up happening is, and I guess we have to back up a little bit and tell the story of this woman that he ends up meeting and uh, ends up losing his membership over. She is a, a Danish convert. Her name is Anna Sophie Jacobson, who converts in, Den- in uh, Denmark, I believe, immigrates to the United States, and meets a guy by the name of Victor Hegstead, who teaches her about um, plural marriage. He claims that they got married before 1904 which is kind of an important date, you know, when you're talking about post-manifesto plural marriage. She claims they got married in 1907. Mm. Anyway, Hegstead gets caught and in this, in this post-manifesto marriage, and he confesses, and part of the agreement with his leaders is that he leave Anna and move to Arizona so as to not embarrass the church and cause more bad publicity for the church. But Anna gets excommunicated in 1921. What a what a shaft, man! Can you? He gets off, gets to just you know, gets to move, move on, and continue his life, and she gets excommunicated. Right, and and yet they both they both were doing the same thing. I think she's more of a victim than Hegstead is because he's the one that taught it to her and and you know kind of pursued her. Yeah. It, anyway, 
Richard Lyman is an apostle and is asked to help oversee her return to the church now that she's an excommunicated member. Um, and it's kind of sad because she's born in, gosh, what was it? Uh, she's two years younger than Lyman, and he's born in 1870, so she's born in 1872. In 1925, she's telling Lyman that she has no hope of getting married. She's, what, 56 or so? What's the math on that? Yeah, you're somewhere around there. Yeah, she's 56 years old, and she's telling Lyman that according to her belief in uh, in the church and the way she'd been raised or been taught, that you had to be sealed to a worthy priesthood holder in order to go to the celestial kingdom, and she was really starting to get concerned about this. Um. Lucky, lucky so they, for her, Richard Lyman has priesthood <laughs> power to seal, right? Well, we're, it's 1925, and according to the record, they decide and they promise to each other that if one of them dies, they'll have the other one sealed to the other uh, so they can be together in the in the next life. Um, so here's, here's, here's what happens next. Um, Richard Lyman becomes a mission president, serves in the European mission, and returns in 1938. And he, by his own admission, confesses that he succumbed to a temptation which he could not resist, and it was his longing for Anna. Um, something else going on at the time is J. Reuben Clark is having the apostles and other high-ranking members of the church uh, followed secretly to make sure that no one was practicing plural marriage secretly or condoning um, plural marriages. It, it's and, probably important to note, Chris, that Heber J. Grant's the church president, but his health is really bad, right? He's he's, he's not in, mm -hmm. he's kind of sick. He's not all with it. And so J. Reuben Clark as his first counselor is actually kind of heading up the church. Exactly. Kind of uh, like when Ezra Taft Benson was ill and how uh, President Hinckley was running it. Right. So it gets discovered that he is having an affair with Anna. Um, and the next part of the story is, I mean, I don't know how to tell it without the tragedy, but also the how, how silly it is. But um, J. Reuben Clark asked Joseph Fielding Smith and Harold B. Lee to head up the investigation. And they feel that the only way to make this a solid case against Richard Lyman is to catch him in the carnal act which is just odd you know the guy is a really nice guy when you read his history he's just he's a really soft-spoken friendly everybody that meets him says he's just a great nice simple brilliant kind of you know one of those he's probably kind of a, a little bit of a, a, a you know kind of a geek kind of a guy but you know really smart so on the on the afternoon of november 11th 1943 joseph fielding smith's Harold B. Lee, the police chief, and a deputy are waiting outside of her apartment. <laughs> you I'm you believe this? Picture, I'm trying to picture a world where to carry out a church procedure, you can get the police chief of Salt Lake City and his deputy. Hey, guys, like, like I know you guys have an important case to work on, but come with me. We're going to do some church business. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, what's funny is the police chief later says, um, because he had been made a high priest by Richard Lyman, he later says that had he known 
that it was Richard Lyman that he was going to bust the door down on and, and catch in bed, that he would have never agreed to it. But he was told that it was a big wig or what does he say, a hot shot um, that they were going after, and he was not told who it was. Mm. Mm. Um, but that's what happens next is they smash the door down. According to Richard Lyman, they demolish the door and catch him in bed with Anna, Anna Jacobson. Yeah. Well, they're they're both hauled off to the uh, church office building in humiliation. And the next day, the 12 are convened and he's excommunicated. And Chris, I mean, these were not young people, right? Right. Uh, you know, going back to when uh, Richard Lyman got off his mission, uh, he was 60, 69 when he got off his mission. Um, when Joseph Fielding Smith and Harold B. Lee knocked the door down, smashed the door down, he is 73 and Anna is 71. The, these are these are elderly people. I mean, all they would have had to do is hide the remote and it would have confused them. You know, I, I mean, <laughs> there was no there's no need to to use such force. I mean, a picture picture two elderly people, 73 and 71. You know, having their afternoon nap. I, except they weren't napping, right? I mean, well, these two, yeah. these two, these two senior citizens are in the throes of passion. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to, but at the same time, I have to picture this uh, in my mind's eye, right, with my spiritual eyes, Chris. Okay, and sure. What I, what I'm seeing are two naked senior citizens making out, and what right? I mean, first off, you have. Essentially, the police doing something illegal, which is taking care of private business in the private sector that has nothing to do with police work. You've got Harold B. Lee and Joseph Fielding Smith smashing the door down to to the home of two senior citizens and scaring scaring them to death almost, right? I mean, I can only imagine being 38 years old, which I am, and me and my wife are being intimate and somebody crashes through my door and my heart racing, I can only imagine what it's like for a 70-something. Yeah, and the, and the humiliation. And remember yeah. that Richard Lyman has been cut off sexually from his wife at this point for like 40 years. I mean, right. can we have a little compassion for him uh, and her? Right. And you wonder if the brethren just took him aside. It doesn't sound like anywhere along the way they take him aside and say, look, is this going on? And, and it's not like he's denied. It just seems like they just want to catch him by surprise. Exactly. And, you, you know, you compare that to the case of Franklin Cannon, the son of George Q. Cannon, who, you know, in the 1800s is married. He's married at 19. He has an illegitimate child that's discovered when he's 23. And He's not excommunicated at all. His dad says, look, make a public confession and, and things will be fine. And he later, later goes on to visit the brothels of, of Salt Lake and, you know, be arrested for drunkardness. And is later Utah's first senator elected to Congress or elected to the Senate in D.C. Uh, it just seems like it's just a hit or, hit or miss when it comes to how we treat people and their uh, you know, imperfections. Crazy. And like you say, once you know the details of all these stories, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense how some of these are handled so harshly and others with such leniency. Um, so often we talk about Jesus as somebody who forgives and loves and and yet it often feels like the church is not extending that same compassion and, and understanding to these situations. It, it's It's just sad to see this happen. I agree, Bill. And I don't want to keep beating a dead horse, but 
these people, the, the members of the 12, they knew Richard. They knew he was a good guy. They knew his soft heart and his kind spirit. Wouldn't a phone call, wouldn't a come on in and talk to us, come on in a one-on-one sit down, been much more Christ-like than this police action, this illegal, you know, barging into their home, yeah. barging into her home. Yeah, you sure would think so. My goodness. Mm. And, and this isn't just uh, just some guy who's called into the Quorum of the Twelve. This guy's father is Francis Lyman, who's an apostle. This guy's grandfather is a Massa Lyman, who's an apostle. I mean, this guy is church leadership blood from generation to generation. And his wife, her family are our general authorities of the church as well, including the Smith line. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. What's interesting is, so three months later, Anna Jacobson is also excommunicated. And what's, this is such a funny story or a side story is he doesn't understand that being excommunicated means his job is over with. And Gary Bergera does a fantastic article in the um, fall 2011 Journal of Mormon History on him. Which we'll link, by the way. We'll link that. He says, uh, Lyman returned to work in the LDS church office building the very next week after his excommunication, asking that he be allowed to keep his office. He was informed that his continuing association with the church headquarters was going to be impossible. I mean, you know, <laughs> he's been excommunicated. And he's wait, like, wait, wait. You guys what? say I can't be here? <laughs> but I can't work out of my office? Um, it's just, it's really sad. He spends um, the next several years um, trying to get rebaptized again. And he felt like he had been dealt with very... Um, he felt like it wasn't fair, that, that, that the, his excommunication wasn't fair, that he hadn't been given a chance to explain uh, his side of the story. He said that he had spent, I believe his, his testimony is less than 10 minutes with the 12 before they sent him out of the room to make their decision. Seems like it was kind of already decided, you know, uh, before it happened. Maybe, uh, you know, what, something what similar. What do you think? Like these, these guys have this close-knit association with each other. Wouldn't you think like – even though he's committed this, what they see as the sin and, and maybe some bad PR for the church if this becomes pretty public. But you would think like this is one of their brethren, like they would sit and, and be able to like let him express himself and, and have a full conversation and, and be able to kind of answer questions or ask questions. And you're saying none of that happens. Not really. No, this was um, it seemed like it was kind of decided before it started, uh, you know, to I guess to put it in. For current terms, some of the like, I guess John DeLynn would probably say the same thing about his excommunication. That you know, it was probably already um, the outcome had already been decided before his trial started. So DeLynn and Runnels might even you know feel like this guy got an unfair shake. Yeah, they might. <laughs> <laughs> and and the other thing too, I mean, this while he's excommunicated, I mean, the guy's the guy's an apostle of the Lord. Towards the end of his apostleship. His wife is called as the Relief Society president. She serves as the eighth president, Relief Society president of the church. And she serves most of that time while her husband is out of the church. That to me yeah. is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I think Richard Lyman was thinking about other times that people had been, uh, you know, had done things that were that were wrong uh, sexually. Uh, George Q. Cannon had two sons that were both um, that were both adulterers, but he used his influence, and they were back in the church, uh, you know, really quick, and mm. back to positions in the church. Mm. And I, you know, I think he just felt like he was just 
it was such a harsh, harsh punishment for him. You know, it was uh, 11 years later before he was finally rebaptized. Although when he was rebaptized, he wasn't, he didn't get his priesthood keys back or his, um, or his temple ceiling. Nothing was restored besides just him being rebaptized. Until posthumously, right? I mean, he gets, yeah. he gets rebaptized in 1954 at the age of 83, and then it's after he's dead that they give this man his priesthood back. Yeah, mm. exactly. Sad. A sad one. But, you know, Anna gets lost in the story a lot. She was excommunicated twice, twice in her life. Um, and we don't even know what happened to her uh, membership in the church. We don't know if she was ever rebaptized or what happened. But to me, she's a tra- tragic side story to this um, and really got a bad shake as far as uh, church leadership. Wow. Sad story. I mean, that's, uh, of course, all of these are going to be because they're all excommunications. The uh, the next one, do uh, you have any thoughts? I mean, we could go into kind of like George P. Lee or what are you thinking? Sure. Yeah. Okay. George P. Lee's a good one. So, so George P. Lee lived down here in southern Utah, right? Yeah. After he uh, got excommunicated, he moved down here to where we live. Yeah. Washington um, County. Uh, <laughs> so come down and visit me at Family Pond and, and you can also maybe get some uh, some history on George P. Lee. Actually, George P. Lee didn't live too many streets from where you live now, Bill, in Santa Clara. Great. Don't don't spread that out. Don't, <laughs> okay. don't tell too many people. Um, so George P. Lee, born in 1943, and uh, he's one of the very first Native Americans to participate in the Indian placement program, which is quite interesting. He gets placed with this LDS couple, and and he gets to go home during the summers and spend time with his with his actual parents and his Native American community. He gets like the Native American name. I don't have it written down here, but it's like kid who behaves and is is well liked. I mean, it's something like he's just a good kid, and he's he's just known as a good kid. He's a, he's a kid who's always choosing the right. He's he's always making the right choice, and he's he's you know pleasant to have around and he's in a good influence on others around him and boy who is boy who is well behaved and good well well behaved and good so yeah. realize like this is like his whole childhood he's he's just this really good solid kid uh first kid in the indian placement program we just talked about uh this he went up to stay with a family in orem utah again went home for the summers to be with his parents and his community Uh, Goes to BYU, gets a bachelor's degree, goes to Utah State University, gets his master's degree, serves as a district president, which would be the same as a stake president, except over branches, uh, serves as a mission president. And then in 1975, he's called into the first quorum of the 70. He's the first Native American general authority, uh, which is impressive. And it's, it's kind of under the tutelage of Spencer W. Kimball. And if, if the listeners remember, Kimball is just a huge fan and huge advocate for anything having to do with the Native Americans or the Lamanites, as he thought all of them were. And so Spencer W. Kimball was one to kind of take George P. Lee under his wing. And George P. Lee had a lot of influence. He was a good speaker. A lot of people looked up to him as one of the general authorities they wanted to see talk or come to their wards or stakes uh, to, to carry out church business. And, and then what happens is President Kimball uh, passes away and George P. Lee's influence is severely diminished to the point where mm-hmm. he starts writing Ezra Tapp Benson letters and writing him like three letters. And in each of these letters, he like asked, he asked like 20 questions, like, like, why did they take away my responsibilities? Like, why do you guys handle me differently than President Kimball did? And, and it's kind of almost demanding answers from the church. And this goes on for a little bit of time. 
And then in 1989, and this would have been kind of into Benson's dementia years, because uh, I think I think Benson dies in like 92. Is that right, Chris? Yeah, that sounds right. And I know like in ni- 1989, 1990, at that point, President Hinckley and President Monson are giving President Benson's talks, if President Benson's even writing them at all. So in eight, 1989, uh, Lee's excommunicated and when it happens, George, of course, the church doesn't really talk about disciplinary uh, procedures. And so if the member talks about him, the church really doesn't generally rebut those and, and give their side of the story. So Lee decides to tell everybody that the reason he's been excommunicated was because of his persistent questioning of church leadership on why his responsibilities and his role and his influence were diminished. And so that's the story for some time. Until 1993, when the Salt Lake Tribune comes out with data that says that in 1989, George P. Lee was um, was essentially, uh, he attempted to molest uh, a, a minor girl. And it was just kind of a, a, you know an article in the Salt Lake Tribune. But again, not a whole lot of facts come to surface at that point. And she was pretty young. I yeah, she 12. Was 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so in 1994... The Salt Lake Tribune finally gets a bunch of data, including the record of the court case where George P. Lee hangs his head down and admits he's guilty of fondling this girl's breast for sexual pleasure. And and so he's essentially sentenced in Washington County, right, in this area, and he goes to the, the famous prison down here, which is called Purgatory. Uh, you've never been there, right, Chris? You, you haven't spent any time there? Uh, well, no, I've not ever been a, an inmate at Purgatory, but in the business you and I are in, sometimes we end up dealing with uh, people from Purgatory, you know? So you, you, so neither of us have seen the inside. We can't tell you a whole lot about what's going on the other side of that. But George P. Lee spent some time there, and uh, it's pretty interesting. It's kind of a, at least a little bit of a chuckle. It's a sad story. Uh, in fact, I think it's Armand Moss. Uh, really renowned uh, LDS author who says that George P. Lee is just one of the saddest stories in LDS history. But you can go online right now today and Google George P. Lee, and you one of the pictures you get right in the top of the search results is his prison photo, where it looks like he just got up in the morning, his hair is in all different angles. It's pretty disheveled. Prison, right? Yeah. yeah, wearing his prison jumpsuit. Um, but yeah. it is a sad, sad it fall is. from um, sad fall from the top to the to the very bottom. And I've only lived but, in this area a couple of years, Chris. Do um, you or anybody you know have any interactions with George P. Lee or or any of uh, his family or anything like that? Yeah, his wife um, continued to live in Washington City uh, down here, right next to St. George, and by all accounts was like you know just a very very kind, nice, giving every you know the, just the nicest lady in the world, and the ward rallied around her and helped her constantly and. Um, you know, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like, uh, um, you know, his wife probably suffered as much as, um, as anyone in the, in the following years, but yeah. And in the little last little note on George P. Lee, um, in 2007, he gets in trouble again because he, he doesn't register as a sex offender and I'm stumbling here because I don't really know the reason why, and and unfortunately, I'm only left to kind of guess what's happening. But in 2007, this happens where he's not registering, and he gets caught, and he hadn't registered since like 2001. 
So from 2001 to 2007, he's not on the sex offender registry. So he gets caught um, not having registered. They end up charging him again, take him to court. His health is really bad. And, and so they drop the charges of him not re-registering uh, where he lived. And he lived in an area with lots of young children. I mean, I don't know if it was a mobile home park or what, but he, he was in a place where lots of kids were around. And sadly, um, he was putting himself at risk for making a similar crime and these kids living near the sex offender and not knowing it. But so he gets re-registered in like 2008, put back on the sex re- uh, offender registry. And then one year later, the government somehow removes him and takes him off that list. Somebody somewhere didn't want him on the list and they removed his name from it. And in the implications here, uh, the accusation here from some people among the critics is that the church's embarrassment of having George P. Lee as a sex offender, that someone in the church pulled some strings and had him removed off the sex registry uh, but it is strange that he was only on there for one year, um, and then it, and then I think he dies in like 2010. Does that yeah, sound right? I was. I, I think you're close. Um, it is 2010. Okay, 2010. He passes away, and, and so again, just another sad story. This person who has such influence uh, at a time when anybody with tan skin is seen as a layman. I mean, today, today you could line up Samoans, Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders. Uh, Mexicans, Indians, and anybody else with tan skin, and we couldn't tell you who's a Lamanite anymore. But back then, everybody with tan skin was a Lamanite, and George P. Lee was kind of the the guy on a pedestal looked up to by all of them. And, yeah. and what a big fall. What a giant Definitely fall. Definitely a tragic story. It is. Tragic. It is. What are you thinking now? Uh, why don't we move on to, how about Joseph F. Smith? Joseph F. the second or Joseph F. the third? Sometimes he was called. Why don't you tell us about the presiding church patriarch, who, by the way, a church patriarch was equal in authority to the Quorum of the Twelve until Eldred uh, Eldred G. Smith's position was done away with and he was made patriarch emeritus. So so tell us about this Joseph F. or Joseph Fielding Smith. Well, that's a cool story in and of itself. When Eldred G. Smith was the presiding church patriarch. He's called into Spencer W. Kimball's office in 1979 and told that at the upcoming conference, general conference, he was going to be announced as uh, an emeritus. And he was completely confused because his position, the position of church patriarch, was given by revelation to Joseph Smith. And on a couple of occasions, Joseph had said that it's a position that would never be removed from the earth. So specifically said that it would never go away, and yet it's going away. But you, you can, and again, we're getting off here, but you can see the brethren's move, right? You have one guy equal in authority to the 12, and, and you, you can kind of make sure that, generally speaking, 12 men can kind of not go too far off the path. But when you have one guy, and you're counting on that one guy to be sane and reasonable— uh, generation after generation after generation, you can see that that's a ticking time bomb at some point, and you can see why they would make such a move. Yeah, and it was a hereditary position, and you know the church had always kind of had a problem with, or not a problem, but there'd always been a little bit of disagreement on who should hold the position next. As after the death of Hiram, 
it was supposed to pass from father to son. So Joseph Smith Sr. to Hiram. And then Hiram dies. Uh, let's see here. I'm after to go to like William Smith. Was- after Hiram dies, it's passed to his younger brother, William. But William Brigham Young had a, a notorious, um, didn't get along, you know, a big, big feud. Uh, and after William's expulsion from the church in 1845, Brigham Young didn't call anyone else to the position. It was several years. And then um, Joseph Smith Sr.'s brother, John, held the position. And at his death, it reverted to Hiram's descendants. Um, so John Smith had a son. So Hiram Smith's oldest son, John Smith, held the position. And then in 1911, John's grandson, Hiram Gibbs Smith, held the position. And at Hiram's death in 1932, Heber J. Grant declined to name Hiram's 25-year-old son, Eldred G. Smith, to the position because he was only 25. And he didn't think it should go to him. But this really hurt Eldred G.'s feelings because he knew that it was going to go from his dad to him. And so he'd been preparing his life for this position. Mm. And even at 25, had a mm. very deep maturity, very good person. But and, Hebert, and instead? And instead, the position holds open for 10 years until it's given to Joseph F. Smith II. And that's where I guess we pick the story up. Right. Um, Joseph F. Smith's grandfather was Joseph F. Smith, the church prophet. So in order to not confuse Joseph F. that we're talking about, what do you want to call him? Joseph F. the Patriarch? Joseph F. the Second? Joseph F. the Third? He's called by many different uh, titles. What do you uh, think, Bill? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Joseph, <laughs> Joseph F. the Patriarch? Uh, yeah, Joseph let's just do that. Let's go with Joseph F. the Patriarch. Because we we got to make sure the audience just needs to know that this is not Joseph F. Smith, sixth president of the church. This is not Joseph Fielding Smith, who's the uh, step or the uh, father-in-law of Bruce R. McConkie. This is this is a completely separate person who is certainly related to those two uh, off different sides of the tree here, but but not not those two individuals. Yeah, Joseph Fielding Smith, the future prophet, is Joseph F. the patriarch's uncle. Right. Um. So he's born in 1899. He serves a mission when he's 21 to Hawaii. He marries Ruth uh, in 1929. They have seven children together. He graduated and got his master's degree in speech and drama from the University of Utah in 1924. Uh, Got his master's in, um, let's see, I think the University of Illinois. He taught at several universities, several prominent universities, including Berkeley and Oxford, always in – some sort of uh, drama, theater, or speech-related uh, subjects. He was also an actor and directed the theater in uh, Salt Lake. He was uh, ordained church patriarch in eighteen, in I'm sorry, 1942, by Heber J. Grant. Um, and this, you know, like we talked about earlier, he didn't have the full support of the Twelve on this. Heber J. Grant um, didn't. He didn't want to go with Eldred G, and so he went with uh, Joseph F. Smith, the second or the third. And um, there were several of the 12 that write in their journals that they felt that Eldred G was the person that should hold the position. And so there was some was some back and forth on that. But then in 1945, George Albert Smith becomes the prophet upon Heber J. Grant's death. And so another interesting date right here, 
is that he receives a second anointing. He and Ruth receive their second anointings by their uncle, by his uncle, Joseph Fielding Smith, in 1943. Mm, interesting. Then, then, what's interesting is three years later, Joseph F. Smith's secretary gets a phone call and is said that Joseph F. will no longer be giving any more blessings, and she says that she never sees him again. So it just... You know, it's just so abrupt and so fast that he leaves his position. So what happened? What happened, Bill? Any idea? Well, I, a little idea. <laughs> um, so Joseph F. Smith, the patriarch, also happens to be gay. Uh, he's a homosexual. And, and in a church that requires you to be straight in order to receive all the blessings – Joseph F. Smith had very little choice but to lead a somewhat secret life, right? And, and yeah. so that gets him in some trouble. And it's um, and and Michael D. Michael Quinn has done the research on this, and it's it's interesting because the the information on this is now in the restricted part of the archives, where people are not allowed to to get the information. Uh, wait, and whoa, whoa, so, wait, wait! I thought we were being transparent today. Well, not on everything, apparently. Okay. Okay. So we're, parse, we're more transparent. There's no way to corroborate any of this because <laughs> it's, uh, it's all restricted. And we, we really are grateful to D. Michael Quinn's notes on this um, because during his time working for Leonard Arrington, when the archives were, were more open and accessible, he took uh, copious notes on Joseph F. the Patriarch. And so there is a there is a, a story. It's probably it, it's really hard to prove whether or not it's true or not. But um, uh, Quinn does allude to the fact that there could have been a romantic relationship between Joseph F. the patriarch and one of his students uh, as early as 1926. But it's it's not an easy one to corroborate. Uh, it's it, it's just kind of circumstantial. But but we should say that something happened because the Quorum of the Twelve essentially release him of his duties, and if I'm not mistaken, he gets sent off to like Hawaii, right? Well, yeah, that's a that's the uh, that's the main story. So the first the first rumors or the first uh, time that there could have been a romantic homosexual relationship between Joseph F. Smith the second uh, the patriarch and and uh, one of his students was in this 1926 story but what happens is in 1946 Joseph F the second his wife Ruth and this uh, kid named Byron Byron Browning who joined the Navy was a student at the University of Utah and his dad all meet with the church prophet, or I'm sorry, the church president, George Albert Smith. Um, this is a really important meeting. And what happens after this meeting um, is that Joseph F. is, uh, he resigns his position as church patriarch. And we have his letter, his letter is available, where he resigns and he says it's for health reasons. But um, that was clearly a, uh, a cover-up. He wasn't he wasn't sick, although his homosexuality could have been seen back then as an illness. And several of the leaders talk about it in their journals as his illness. Um, so mm, mm. so in some ways, it wasn't like they were being dishonest or lying. It's just that 
Sadly, the leadership of the church and, and much of the culture, to be honest, at that time, felt like homosexuality was a disease or some kind of sickness. Yeah, and I think that's why you see them using the word illness uh, and infliction. Sometimes they use the word infliction, too, in their journals. Um, really nice guy, though, by all accounts. Uh, he dressed meticulously, had a really outgoing personality, really articulate in his speech, uh, was a fantastic uh, communicator and gave great talks. Um, really a really a sad story. Um, but as far as the sexual encounter or his sexual relationship with Byron Browning, who was 21 when it all came to a head, um, and it probably been going on for a, a few years. No scholars today don't, don't believe it was a, um, a full, uh, it was, it was probably a very romantic relationship, but probably didn't involve, um, you know, the full act of, uh, of intercourse. So mm -hmm. to be fair to the situation, it was, um, you know, it was probably, we don't know how far it went, but it probably didn't, uh, you know, go all the way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Hmm. But afterwards, um, you know, his family, they all moved to Hawaii, like you say, and he teaches, uh, teaches at the university there. His wife gets a job teaching the elementary school. He continues to receive his, uh, modest living allowance. Um, it, it, which, what do you mean by modest, Chris? Well, back then it was $400 a month. So okay. What is it today? Uh, well, <laughs> that's a whole, isn't that a whole other podcast? <laughs> yeah, that'll be another episode. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, but what happens is he is, He's not officially disfellowshipped or excommunicated, but when he moves to Hawaii, his stake president and other local leaders are told not to give him a, a calling in the ward and not to issue him a temple recommend. And um, and so it's really hard for him to, to participate in full fellowship with the saints over there. So what happens is his son, Hiram W. Smith, who lives just down the road from us in Gunlock today, was leaving for his mission, and he asked that his dad be allowed to speak at his farewell. So David O. McKay, the prophet, gave his agreement, gave, gave his uh, his okay on it, and uh, he slowly um, he was given a calling after that. And um, but it's still a very very tragic story. He dies at age sixty five of a heart attack while visiting well in Salt Lake for his daughter's wedding. And so um, he never gives another another patriarchal blessing. No, no, he doesn't. And and then after he passes away, Eldred G. Smith is then actually called as the patriarch. Um, and, and essentially, you have to wonder if church leadership thought, man, it, I think all things point to those people writing in their journals, those other leaders who disagreed, writing in their journals that from their point of view, and again, I'm not saying right or wrong, I, I totally understand the complexity of homosexuality in the church and there's a large conversation there, but from their point of view, they probably thought the church president had made the wrong decision, and that was evidence that he had. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair to say. You know, just as an aside, D. Michael Quinn wrote a, a really good book called Same Sex Dynamics in the late '90s. I think it was the late '90s, early 2000s. Fantastic book for anybody that wants to uh, study more on um, uh, early sexuality and Mormonism. Um, just fascinating, some of the stuff that Quinn has. Uh, been able to put together yeah we'll we'll link to that book as well so people can pick it up so we've got i think two no we got three more to do 
Um, why don't we do uh, George D. Watt, and and then we can jump into I think a fun one, which is this this kid. Okay. <laughs> this, this, we've, so we've got a couple good ones left. Here, we man. do. Let's save those two for the end. <laughs> let's go with George D. Watt and uh, and Chris. This this is a relative of yours, right? Yeah, uh, George D. Watt is my great great grandfather's brother. I guess that makes him my great uncle. I I guess right. Great uncle. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So tell us about this guy. Well, it's a fun story. Um, George D. Watt joins the church in Preston, England. He's the first member of the church to join. They they have a foot race. There's eight people in the race, and he wins, so he gets to be baptized first. Um, had very little schooling, but a brilliant guy, self-taught. Um, he learned a thing called Pittman shorthand, which allowed him to write as fast as a speaker could speak, and got to Utah and um, became Brigham Young's personal secretary for about 20 years. Uh, and what happens is, on May 15, 1868, he goes into Brigham Young's office and he asks for a raise. He was making $3.50 a day. And he was barely getting by, and his family was suffering. They were actually starving. And he asked for a dollar fifty a day raise to five dollars a day. And Brigham Young, um, being uh, who, who was also getting a modest living stipend, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> who was actually what is this, eighteen sixty-eight? So he is uh, a millionaire at this point, or probably close to it. Says that no one in his employ was worth what he paid them. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you believe that? Uh, uh, he, you know, probably not the greatest, um, uh, you know, I can't imagine working for Brigham Young and the morale was real high with the people that worked for him. <laughs> if he thought everyone around him was, ev everyone in his employee was overpaid. Uh, um, and so it really offended George D. Watt. He felt like it was a, it was an accusation of stealing that Brigham Young was accusing of, of, of stealing, that he wasn't even worth the 350 a day that Brigham was paying him. And he says that he put on his coat and hat and walked out and never went back. And what's Ooh. interesting is his desk was full of papers and notes, and, and he never went back to it. And it gets boxed up, put away. And you remember, this is 1868, and it doesn't get opened and organized until 1985. So <laughs> this valuable treasure trove of documents sits there for over a hundred years in the church archives. That's amazing. And, and he ends up associating himself with the, the Godbeites, right? A little bit, but he was pretty adamant in his life that he was not an apostate like that, that he, that he was not a, um, a follower of the Godbeites. I think there's several letters where he says that I think he was uh, a little enamored with it for a while, but he definitely says that he wasn't in several letters. But that's used as the motivation behind excommunicating him, correct? Um, yeah, he had, a, he had a hard time with his bishop. And I know this is even a common story today. But he moves to, um, where is it, Bill? Kaysville or Layton someplace? I think it's Kaysville he moves to. And his bishop uh, comes it, to it, see It is Kaysville. Is it Kaysville? Yes. Okay. His bishop comes to see him. And um, he tells him that I believe you are going to apostatize. You're going to turn against the church. And this kind of offends 
George D. Watt, obviously, and the bishop assigns him home teachers who asked him very probing questions about his testimony. In fact, there's a, a great book on this by Ronald G. Watt called The Mormon Passage of George D. Watt. And to read a quote out of it, it says that uh, the war teachers whom the bishop had sent asked Watt very personal probing questions about his testimony, including why he did not attend church more often. Um, Watt told them that his teams needed rest and sent an outraged letter to Brigham Young where he was more candid. I cannot sit and hear personal castigations administered from the stand to myself and my friends, he said. And if his bishop was trying to make him humble, it, he says, quote, it never can be accomplished in this way. Espionage or adversity only stiffens my neck and sets me in defiance while generous kindness and smiling friendship melts my soul. Mm. You know, and this isn't a no. You know, this is not a nobody. This is a guy who who produced the Deseret Alphabet, right? Mm-hmm. This is a guy who uh, re- recorded, organized, and published much of the uh, Journal of Discourses. I mean, this guy was heavily, heavily influential with church leadership for years. Yeah, he worked for the Deseret News for Willard Richards. Um, just like you say. Um, rub shoulders with the highest echelons of the church and uh, tragic, tragic way to, to end over um, something that could have been easily avoided had it been handled different by both men, Brigham and George D. Watt. Isn't there an interesting story with kind of his death as well? Yeah, there is. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, so it says here, uh, Watt tried to return to the LDS church four times uh, he attempted to rejoin the church but was denied because his beliefs differed from those of the LDS church. Upon his last visit to church, President John Taylor Watts said, President Taylor, I want you to know if anything happens to me before I am reinstated in the church, it is your responsibility. And then after his death, Taylor makes a special trip to his home to say that he should be buried in his temple robes. Wow, okay. But it's. It, I think it would be a great story for you to tell. Um, and then... I was going to cut out the part where I'm telling the story. I was going to let you tell it about his death. Uh, yeah, yeah, you, you told it good. Well, all right, let's, then, let's move on. Okay. okay. <laughs> this is not that exciting to me. I don't know. I'm, all right, gotcha. I mean, I like the fight with him and Brigham, but, you know. Do you think you have enough to edit in? Yeah, I'll, I'll figure it out. We'll make it good. Okay. Um, if not, we'll leave all this in. People will laugh at us going back and forth. Okay. So the next one we wanted to go into, and I just think the story is hilarious, there's this kid named James C. Brewster. Brewster's born in 1826, and when he's a really young child, his parents convert to the LDS church. 1836. This kid is 10 years old. I've got an 11-year-old kid, Zachary. Uh, he's a bright kid. He's smart. He's he's always into mischief and trouble, but it's innocent. <laughs> he doesn't have a clue about like what real trouble is. He's he's not doing anything bad. He's not really wishing to harm anybody or hurt anybody. He he's he's just an eleven year old. And I'm trying to picture him one year ago as a ten year old because James C. Brewster at eight in eighteen thirty six as a ten year old begins to claim that he's receiving visits from Moroni. Yes. That Moroni, the Moroni who visits with Joseph Smith and gives him gold plates out of the Drumlin in New York. Who's to, that, say, that, that who's to say that Angel Moroni wasn't his name? Uh, right? I'll tell you what, Chris, <laughs> if a 10-year-old comes to me and a 10-year-old says he's having visitations with Moroni, even, even in the midst of my doubting perspective right now, 
I'm going to have to like listen to this kid with some sincerity and not judge him as being misled. So, so Joseph Smith and the church, they put up with it for about a year. This kid it goes on and on about how he's visiting Moroni and Moroni's telling him this and Moroni's telling him that. And the very guy who's visited a ton by Moroni just just a little later in his life, right, at mm-hmm. 17 to 20-something, and, and Moroni's telling him stories, he, he, he doesn't believe this kid. So at 11 years old, James C. Brewster is excommunicated from the church. I'm trying to picture, I mean, I served as a bishop, Chris. I'm trying to picture bringing an 11-year-old in who's having angelic visitations and just saying like, dude, you're lying. I'm sorry. You're out. You're out. That's it. We're, we're cutting off your church membership. You can't take the sacrament. Uh, you know, you don't have any garments, so you don't have to worry about not wearing those, but continue to pay your tithing. Right? Well, you don't hold the priesthood either. I mean, it's right. hard to imagine this kid was much of a threat, isn't it? <laughs> his I mean, life went a, on normal, right? <laughs> he's a primary age kid. It's hard to believe that this was worth the leadership of the church's time at the time. But All he's doing is singing families can be together forever. Right? <laughs> so he gets excommunicated at the age of 11 um, due to his persistent claims that he's visiting with Moroni. In... in in 1842 to 1844, he starts releasing pamphlets in books. So by this time, he's 14, 15, 16 years old. In 1848, he starts a church titled the Church of Christ. It goes on to be known as a Brewsterite church, obviously named after him. Um, and then, and then, kind of the climax of his uh, his prophethood. In 1850, he shows up in the census. His all of his followers show up in the census because when Joseph's martyred in 44, he draws—I wouldn't say significant, but it's not a small group either. He draws, you know, a, a you know several dozen people to him, and and they essentially go out to New Mexico, and that's where they have their settlement. And so, if you go into the 18, if you go into FamilySearch.com, and you look up the 1850 census, Socorro, New Mexico you'll find James C. Brewster and his followers there. And if you go there, you'll see the census record of James C. Brewster. And if you just run your finger at the top of the screen where it says occupation and run it down where it crosses with his name, you'll see that his occupation is Mormon prophet. And and that's pretty much the end of it because that is the last time Brewster does anything that has to do with any kind of divine nature, claiming prophetic mantle, giving prophecies. And so from the age of 24 till his death in a nursing home in his mid-80s, not another word is spoken about him holding any kind of prophetic mantle. And so the last six decades of his life go essentially unnoticed. And for a long time, people had no clue where this guy was. And they finally discovered that he had kind of gone back with some of his family, ended up in a nursing home, and kind of just died alone there. Sad. Yeah, I, I'm. That's a that's an excommunication that I don't think hardly anyone's heard of. That was a that was a really unusual one to come across. And and I just think it would really be hard to doubt what a ten or eleven year old says if they're sincerely claiming some type of spiritual experience. I mean, Mormonism wants you to go off into the woods and have your own revelation. At least it says that out one side of its mouth, but in some ways out the other side, it says, yeah, but if you have a revelation and that differs with anything that's going on in the church, then you are on really 
um, really dangerous ground. Yeah, I just uh, I, I I just picture a kid just kind of telling stories and running around, not being a threat or a, worth anyone's time of making it serious. You know, we have John C. Bennett here just a couple years later, sleeping with girls in the town, and Joseph forgives him. And, you know, lets him remain as a uh, uh, an assistant church president. It, it just seems like just, a, I don't know, it seems like an overreaction. I will me, say, to, though, Chris, you're right. But, but the one thing I would throw back at that, if I look at Joseph Smith's life and the times he was harshest with people, it was the times that somebody else was claiming to get revelation. Oh, yeah, I can see. Yeah, all right. That's a valid point. Mm. Um, so now we, we want to finish up with our last story. Chris, like, just take us take us home with this one. Um, tell us the story here. This one's a little um, this one's a little salacious. The details are um, a little graphic in uh, in the in the historic record. Um, do you want to be? What do you want to do, Bill? Do you want to do you want to make? Should we? discuss everything that uh, that's in the record here or what do you want to do uh, i would just preface the listeners i i want i would love to just tell the story and just share the facts and i'm sure you and i are going to chuckle a little bit as we do it but uh, we would want to warn the listener that if if anything up till now bothered you at all then you're definitely going to want to hit stop on your podcast, maybe move on to something from Fabrizio Radio West. Uh, maybe maybe turn on you know a, a Mormon Matters episode or something. But if, but if so far you've been chuckling along with us and having a laugh, then then I think you're ready to hear this last story. So let's just tell it like it was. Okay, this is an odd one. This is um, the story of Albert Carrington. Uh, he was an apostle in the 1800s. He joined the church in 1841 with his wife Rhoda. They move to Nauvoo, and he takes a plural wife. They head west with Brigham Young in February of 1846, uh, crossing the Mississippi, and they end up in the original group of pioneers that enter the Salt Lake Valley with Brigham Young. Uh, 1870, at age 57, Albert Carrington is ordained an apostle, and also at the same time, he was appointed the church historian. And in 1873, he is is appointed a member of the First Presidency under Brigham Young. He presided three times over the church's European mission. So this is all in the 1870s. This is taking place. Now, remember, he was um, born in – I've lost it. When was he born, Bill? Do you know his – He was born – yeah, January 8th of 1813. Born in 1813, and we're talking about the 1870s. So he's a pretty old so he's a pretty old guy when he's serving as the mission president in England um, in the 1870s. What happens is, after his third uh, tenure time serving as a mission president, he is replaced by Apostle John Henry Smith. So John Henry Smith arrives in England to take over, you know, as mission presidents do, you know, shows up at the mission office and says, so, you know, introduce me to the missionaries and the leaders and and the books. And uh, Albert Carrington says, all right, well, um, you know, have a great day, uh, John Henry Smith. I'm taking a boat back to Utah. Immediately, John Henry Smith, the new mission president and apostle, starts to hear 
lots and lots of rumors about the 69-year-old mission president that he's replacing. Um, and the, the most the, – the, the main rumor he's hearing is that Sarah Kirkman was the um, maid in the mission home, and she was 20 years old. And there are several witnesses to um, indiscretions between Sarah, the 20-year-old maid, and the mission president, 69-year-old Albert Carrington. They were caught together in many compromising situations, fondling each other, petting each other, drinking beer in the mission home, etc. They take a trip to London for nine days together, just the two of them. Um, anyway, John Henry Smith writes a letter and sends it to Utah. And so the 12 convene a council and call Brother Carrington in. He's a, you know, a member of the 12. He's an apostle. He's one of them. And he vehemently denies the allegations and is, is offended that they are accusing him of something as serious as uh, adultery. Uh, and I wanted to read here from Gary Bergera's article uh, that he did in 2011, summer 2011, in the Journal of Mormon History. He quotes, however, he says, however, what his brethren did not know was that Carrington had lied about his relationship with Kirkman, that his extramarital affairs included other women, and that they had actually begun during his second tenure as mission president over the European mission in the mid-1870s. So not only is he telling them that all the allegations against him are false, but there's also many other instances that the brethren don't know about. Chris, this is the first sexual impropriety in Mormonism involving a maid, correct? Uh, Sure, Bill. I know, I know where you're going on with that, but that's another podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll just skip that one. Go ahead. All Keep right. It up. So let's skip forward here. Let's or let's take a sidestep over to Sarah uh, Kirkman. So she's a 20 year old maid. She immigrates to Utah and marries a guy by the name of Richard Bridge. And after her marriage, she confesses to him that she had committed adultery with the mission president Albert Carrington before and since they'd been married. So you can imagine Richard Bridge, uh, you can imagine that discussion, right, at the, in the kitchen of their home or mm. wherever it was. Mm. You're sleeping with an apostle. Mm-hmm. You're sleeping with Brigham Young's. You're sleeping with a member of the First Presidency. You did this before we were married and since we've been married. So you can imagine he's pretty upset. And he actually writes a letter to John wow. W. Taylor, um, John Taylor's mm. son, which is a, you know, another interesting story that John W. Taylor ends up being in the middle of this. <laughs> probably probably not going to be the strongest advocate for, for what's going um, on. So uh, they look into it, and they find out that um, there's, other, there's other women. There were two other women specifically, and one of the women, Jeanette Smith, had also been involved in an adulterous relationship with Albert Carrington before and after her marriage. So she's now currently married. And Albert Carrington, the apostle, was sleeping with her after her marriage. So he's called back into the Twelve, and he confesses that he says, yeah, all this is true, but, and there's a big but to this, and I want to read, to, I want to read what Gary Bajera says, and this is actually from Wilford Woodruff's journal on this, uh, on this occasion. Wilford Woodruff says that Brother Carrington claimed that this was not adultery, that he did not spill his seed inside of any of these women, that he did not mix his seed with theirs, and that mixing of the seed was what he terms adultery. 
against which he said he had a natural abhorrence from his youth up, and he thanked the Lord for having kept him from doing that which alone was regarded by him as adultery. So he had a different idea of adultery than, I guess, the rest of us would have. Um, so uh, imagine the 12. Definitions <laughs> do matter, Chris. Imagine the 12 listening to a, uh, a one of their own, <laughs> and he's saying, guys, I did these things, but these things are not adultery. Don't you understand? <laughs> Can you imagine these guys going, are you serious? That's your <laughs> this, <laughs> this is your, your defense? defense? <laughs> this is the best you got? <sighs> And you can see too, like, let's fast forward to modern day. You get these kids at BYU that, you know, that have these terms like soaking mm-hmm. where they're just, you know, sticking their junk in, in, in the female. Yeah. And I'm, I'm probably being, I'm probably being way too vulgar, but sticking their junk in the female and just like letting it sit there and not actually going through the action of the back and forth. And so they don't, they don't consider it sex or, or you have these BYU kids who say, yeah, if we just, you know, if we just rub against each other with our clothes on, then that's not breaking any rules. Or if we have oral sex, that's not breaking any rules. And you say, man, these are the silliest excuses in the world. But the reality is that even apostles have tried to come up with these kinds of yeah, excuses. Yeah, that's a good point. And even so, Albert Carrington writes in his journal after this meeting with the Twelve, he says, quote, At a council of the Twelve, where they excommunicated me from the church for lewd and lascivious conduct and adultery, the last of which I never committed, even in thought, as I understood the English language. So he claims, I didn't even, mm. I've never even had the thought of adultery. Um, another, so (laughs) this is interesting, um, Uh, that mm. there's also, and this is just an aside, but in 1885, um, another member of the church named William Bricker was brought up on charges of adultery. And he claimed that he did not commit adultery with a woman named sister Elizabeth Phelps, as he had always spilled his seed before having any connection with her. And that's from the Salt Lake, the Salt Lake State High Council minutes from June 16th, 1885. He was later excommunicated. But it's interesting that you have two guys in the same time period. Um, one's an apostle and one's not, but both making such a, a, a strange, strange claim. Uh, you know, you would think everyone would be on the same page when it comes to what adultery means. Um, and for these guys to say, uh, you know, to try to try to make try to get off on this other uh, on this other tangent makes no sense at all he also writes and this is albert carrington he writes to francis m wyman and francis m wyman says that and he is just disgusted by what albert carrington has told him but albert carrington is trying to say and this is his quote this is just a little folly in israel and he uses this quote many times in talking with the members members of the 12 apostles. He calls it a little folly in Israel. And that, and this is Albert Carrington speaking to um, Francis Lyman. He said that a man could carnally know a woman sexually, single or married, to the depth of four inches. If he would withdraw his seat, it was not adultery. So I don't know where in the world. I mean, he's even going further now. With I, so, Yeah, so the stipulation, as long as I go in four inches or yeah, less... I, then this this isn't really any any commandment breaking. I, yeah, and he he stood up before the twelve and defended this doctrine. The quorum were unable to convince him of his error. Uh, I, it's just um, it's just so incredible that you would have a person in this position um, and this trusted. After Brigham Young's death, Albert Carrington is an executor of Brigham Young's estate. He's also a trustee and trust for the church. Um, you know, this isn't just. Mm. 
This isn't just a church leader. This is a highly respected, highly trusted member of the church. And, and James C. Brewster is sent packing yeah, for seeing yeah, Moroni. Exactly. <laughs> so do you think like this teaching is common in the church somewhere that that this idea that if you if if you don't uh, spill your seed, so to say, inside the lady, um, or or you only go to a certain depth. It sounds like this is coming from more than one person. Like I guess what I'm saying here is, and I'm and I'm not. I want to be really careful. I don't want to make any accusations. But one explanation for you know, I know I know Brian Hales, for instance, wants to. Because one of the stipulations for Section 132 is to multiply and replenish the earth, I think Brian Hales would like to see a child from one of those relationships so that he can point to it and say, look, Joseph's trying to multiply and replenish the earth. And there's no children. We now know that um, Sylvia Sessions' daughter um, is is not Joseph Smith's child. And, and so you're looking for that. But one of the explanations, because Joseph seemingly is having uh, intercourse with with at least a couple handfuls of the women I think it's to. at least 12 and probably 15 or at least at least 12 okay. and there's a chance 15 so up to almost so half it's not of it's not a wife. small number yeah it's not a small number and and so is it i mean one of the things would be if this teaching is somewhere in mormonism's milieu is it possible this could even be traced back to joseph and that the reason Joseph isn't having any children, again, I'm just hypothetically throwing a, an idea out, is that Joseph's using the pull. I think method. that's a stretch. Um, I don't think you, you're going to find that anywhere in uh, church history or anyone saying it. I think we would have come across it by now, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I do too. It just seems odd that Joseph has no problem getting Emma pregnant. I think she's pregnant six or seven times, including the miscarriages um, that she has. And and yet all of the other women that Joseph is intimate with, and again, maybe it's just so sparse and and so irregular that it just happens to not happen. But I think one argument could be is that Joseph is using some type of birth control method. And, and back then, one of your few options was the pull-out I method. guess. I guess you could um, propose that. Uh, I, I just don't know that there would be any evidence for it. But it does seem odd that you have two guys in the same... Uh, time period in church leadership and you know making the same claim as to what their idea of adultery was um one last question for you too there's this guy you said who says i spilled my seed before being intimate with the lady that's that's the quote that's what he says so i've I've got two questions chris what did he do to spill his seed Uh, because last i checked (laughs) masturbation was a sin too (laughs) and and my other question, in fact, I, maybe more of a statement, I, I think this guy deserves an, a, an award because – I'm not trying to be vulgar here, but after – yeah, no, the other – whoever the guy is that says I spilled my seed before oh, being his intimate. His name was William Bricker. That dude's got some stamina. I'm just saying, like, I, he deserves, like, a medal well, or something. I don't know. I don't know. What, <laughs> I guess if you, uh, if you see him as a hero or something, uh, I don't know, man. I think he's just yeah, another I, guy yeah, with just, a – yeah, with well, the idea. It's just another dude. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm just on the other side of the spectrum. I'm sorry. One okay, go things, ahead. Let's continue. You know, one of the things that some of the twelve suggested to Albert Carrington, or one of the things they they were incredulous about, is that why didn't you just marry this girl? I mean, plural marriage is uh, being highly encouraged. Brigham Young had told um, 
many people, as they would go off on missions, go off and find a young girl and bring her back and marry her. Um, Albert Carrington could have married these girls and made them plural wives. Um, so it just seems odd. It just is a, a, just a strange way to have behaved. And a, Does he ever explain why? Does he ever say, like, why he didn't think to go that route? Because you're right. He says he's Brigham Young's counselor. He can go to Brigham Young and say, look. I found some. I found some really good-looking chicks over here. I'm wondering if you'd just let me get sealed to them and, and bring them. What it said, yes. In fact, yes, there is a um, quote. Let me grab it. Okay, this is from Bajera's article again. It says, at the beginning of Carrington's first term as European mission president in 1868, Brigham Young counseled him and other missionaries, quote, "When you get over there, I want each of you to select a good girl and marry her." Um, when asked how he intended to follow Young's advice, Carrington had said he didn't think he should do anything about it as he dared not trust himself to select a wife without the help of Rhoda, his first wife. So so rather than have a plural marriage, he thought, I'll just have some affairs that really aren't sex because I'm not I'm not going in far enough and I'm not I, spilling seed uh, in there. It's, in, it's incredible. It's a crazy it's incredible. story. So he, he's really... He's really incredible. He's just incredulous that he got excommunicated. He can't believe he got excommunicated for something like adultery when he had never even thought about committing adultery, as he said in his own words. So he um, petitioned the brethren to be rebaptized until his death in 1889. Um, uh, I'm sorry. In, he, he dies in 1889 at the age of 76. Um, the brethren say no, but he's getting really old and really frail, and he's very ill. And so at the last minute, Wilford Woodruff agrees to um, restore his uh, – well, let me be really careful. Wilford Woodruff agrees to let him be rebaptized. Um, so the elders go to his home, but when they arrive, he had died 15 minutes previous. So while he's laying there dead – they ordain him to the office of an elder so he could be buried in his temple clothes. Um, so Wikipedia does not tell that story, Chris. Wikipedia says that he's baptized, rebaptized on November 1st, 1887. Upon his rebaptism, he was not reinstated as an apostle or as a general authority. On his deathbed, Carrington received permission to be ordained an elder. So that he could be buried in his temple clothes. But you're saying the actual story is the guy's already dead. He's already passed away. Yeah, let me get you the quote here. Amazing. Just when you think, Chris, that you've you've learned all there is to learn about Mormonism and its history, there there's always something. I mean, I, I can't tell the, the listener this enough. There's always something around the corner that's going to perk your interest again and get you talking about it. Okay, so according to Orson F. Whitney... Orson F. Whitney's diary, September 21st, 1889. Fifteen minutes after his death, the elders arrived at Albert Carrington's house to ordain him an elder at the direction of President Woodruff. So <laughs> I guess Wikipedia is wrong. I would go with Orson yeah, F. I would, Whitney. Uh, I would too. But anyway, he got his wish. He was buried in his temple clothes. And uh, I guess he's uh, talking to Heavenly Father about it now, about uh, – his actions on earth uh, to me that's the to me that's the <laughs> i guess we've i guess we've probably overstated at this point but for an apostle a member of the first presidency church historian trustee of the church trustee and trust of the church executor of brigham young's estate mission president three times 
for him to come up with a reason, an excuse for committing adultery that's this lame, that's this weak, is uh, unexplainable. So, like you said, just when you didn't think Mormonism could get any more odd, <laughs> you come across a story like this. But I, and Richard Lyman gets yeah, his door knocked down. Gets his door smashed, <laughs> smashed in by the chief of police. <laughs> oh, crazy. Anyway. Well, yeah, there you have it, folks. There is some excommunications in the church. Hopefully, at least one of those you had never heard before and you enjoyed the episode. We'd really, we'd really love to hear your feedback. Um, here at Mormon Discussion, we're, we're trying to make the church, you know, history interesting. We're, we're trying to have a few laughs as we, as we look at some of these deep parts. A lot of times these, this history can be troublesome. Uh, I, again, I just, I hope that learning new things is of interest to you and, and hope you're appreciating the podcast. Again, we'd love to hear what your thoughts were on the episode. If you thought it was too, too far out there across the line, let us know. I mean, leave a comment on the, on the page or on the Facebook post where we share it. Uh, but uh, as always, our hope is that people who are struggling, people who are having a hard time with Mormonism, can can see that there's things we can laugh at. There's there's ways to reconcile certain issues. There's there's an ability to see that that all of us are just human beings and we're all just kind of struggling along and and not to take these things just too seriously. And uh, maybe just as a finish off, Chris. Uh, Boy, I would. I, I would add, I'd say the same thing, Bill. I mean, these are just people. I think that's what, I think that's why I love church history so much is it, it illustrates to me time and time again, how these are just human beings, very flawed human beings, more flawed than, more flawed than myself in most instances. Um, and it, you know, it gives me faith to, to go on and, uh, and not feel maybe so bad about my own, um, sins and weaknesses and problems when I see people uh, so broken and misguided. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and uh, I, I don't really want to you know, close the way I normally do, but I certainly do hope the Lord warms your shoulders. Have a great night, and thanks again, Chris. Thanks, man. Taking out my issues never healed the